Cape Talk. Monday Night Surgery with Dr. Shaw. All right, so it's a warm welcome back to Dr. Shah this week, and it's a real doctor's surgery this week. Anything that you want to ask, any medical topic, give us a call or send your questions in for Dr. Shah. Uh, Dr. Shah, great to have you back with us, and I'm, I'm going to say a belated Happy New Year. And to you, hi, Sarah Jane. Great to chat again. Yes, yeah, super stuff. So listen, we're going to crack on. Uh, we've already got uh, messages coming in thick and fast for you. Uh, so uh, let's start with, oh, who have we got? Let's see. <laughs> uh, hi, SJK. Please ask the good doctor the best remedy for gout. Well, now, let's first make sure we've got the right diagnosis. So uh, gout is uh, uh, it's an arthritis. So uh, a formation of these crystals that occur in certain joints is usually a trigger, maybe it's diet related, something that's promoting uh, this particular substance that forms in the joints and uh, you're either producing too much uh, or you're not excreting enough. So quick remedies, there aren't really any sort of over-the-counter user-friendly ones. It's, it's normally a, an anti-inflammatory strategy. So part of the remedy is uh, medical uh, substances that we use to uh, treat the inflammation and, and partly treat the pain. And then it's about identifying the triggers, uh, which may be diet-related. Sometimes there's a particular food stuff that one can avoid that, uh, that helps to bring the, the, the inflammation under control. But important step to start with is get your healthcare practitioner to just make sure we've got the right diagnosis uh, and see if there's any long-term therapy that we can put you on. Great stuff. There we go. First one out of the park. Done. Easy stuff. All right. Uh, Jackie in Burtisik has sent us in a message and says, uh, Dr. Shah, my 11-year-old grandson was bitten by a friend's dog this afternoon. Oh, dear. Uh, do we need to take him for a tetanus? Mm. So the cautious answer is possibly yes. Um, tetanus its a, a bacterial infection that one can pick up. Uh, it's a contaminant in the environment, so typically associated with uh, maybe animal bites or sometimes a, a contaminated wound, like a, a trauma from standing on a, on a rusty nail or something like that. And the, the short answer is depends on whether the child has been vaccinated appropriately. So there is a great vaccine, very effective for tetanus, and it's part of the childhood spectrum that one gets uh, when one's very young. And there are a couple of regular booster shots that are recommended. So if one's followed that schedule, then the 11-year-old should still be protected. Uh, if in doubt, many practitioners will just recommend another tetanus uh, uh, injection anyway. There's limited harm in, uh, in getting another one. And then the protection is at least 10 years from that vaccine. So uh, if you've had one or you're reasonably sure you've had one, then protection is great. Uh, if one's unsure, particularly as one gets a little bit older, uh, and particularly if there is a, a contaminant risk, then we normally suggest getting another one. And it's obviously about checking the, the type of bite, you know, was there actual penetration from the teeth of the animal, and were there any other things involved, you know, was it unprovoked, was there possibly a risk of a, a you know, a rabies risk, for example, from the animal bite, um, but in general, healthcare checkup, proper cleaning, and maybe a tetanus shot, yes. Okay, there we go. I hope that's uh, helped you out. Thanks so much for that. If you are just joining us, uh, we are doing a Q&A uh, this evening on Dr. Surgery with Dr. Shalfan Lockenberg. And uh, if you uh, would like to uh, send in your questions or give us a call, you can do so. Uh, we love to take your calls on 021-446-0567. Jeremy is manning the phones as we speak. Uh, and uh, you can send us an SMS to 31567 or a WhatsApp to 072-567-1567. Oh, now here we go. Julie says that, uh, hi, doctor. My boyfriend was kissing my ear when I suddenly heard a pop 
ultrasound. Should I have it checked out? Hmm. I haven't heard that Eek. one before, I must say. Kissing, kissing related ear popping. <laughs> um, so I suppose uh, certainly get it checked out. Certainly if there's symptoms that are, are persisting, if there's any kind of pain in the ear, then absolutely. Um, one would imagine that if it was a, a particularly uh, um, a passionate kiss, I suppose is the description, then there is a possibility that the eardrum, that tympanic membrane, has sustained some damage. It is possible to pop or rupture the, the eardrum, uh, but there will certainly be some symptoms attached to it. So if it was just a little noise, then uh, possibly we're just looking at uh, an equalization of pressure and, and not anything too serious to worry about. But if symptoms are persisting, then certainly she should uh, get her uh, ear checked out. We can examine it quite easily in the, in the doctor's rooms or in the emergency department and then see if there's been any uh, eardrum or tympanic membrane damage for sure. That sounds very... How passionately was he kissing you, Julie? I mean, that sounds extreme. <laughs> it does rather, it does rather. And... Um, uh, so I'm going to probably steer clear of that, not being an expert in, in what, uh, you know, the sort of in kissing. habits are today, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but um, maybe just to caution, uh, you know, anyone in general that uh, maybe stick to the more conventional strategies of kissing and, uh, you know, maybe avoid, uh, avoid over the top of the ear is, is possibly good advice in this case. <laughs> okay, there we go. Uh, we've had a question in from, ooh, from Anonymous, uh, who says, uh, is the hormonal, is hormonal contraception bad for me? What's hormonal contraception? Well, uh, it's, it's kind of a vague question. I, I suppose the answer is anything that's not mechanical contraception. So, you know, mechanical contraception, condom like use, Like a coil. Oh, okay. Yeah, then, then we're talking mechanical. Most contraceptive devices or strategies for females are hormone-related. So <clears throat> whether it's um, the pill, we're taking tablets on a, on a daily basis, or implanted uh, devices uh, in the uterus, they, they've all got some form of hormone connected to them so that they interrupt the um, fertilization cycle. So hormone contraception is really the general common form of female contraception, uh, yes, would be the answer. Um, and if they're prescribed by a healthcare practitioner and selected appropriately for the lady, then, then no problem at all. Uh, hormonal contraception is kind of the, the, the medical standard that we use. Fantastic stuff. Here's a, here's a strange question you've had in. Hi, Doc, this isn't health-related, but what do you find patients are most embarrassed about when they come before you? Mm. That's an no, interesting it's, question. It is, well, it sort of depends on the patient, I suppose. You know, um, it's probably normal social embarrassment. So uh, patients, very often, the symptoms drive the need to ask the question. So we'll often find that embarrassing questions are either... Uh, maybe unusual injuries that have been sustained maybe in, uh, in an activity that they wouldn't want to describe in polite company. So we see that a couple of times. Um, or it's maybe disease or symptom-related things that are, are related either to sexual organs or to places that uh, you wouldn't want to you know, commonly describe or expose in public. So we do see a number of those. But I think really, you know, embarrassing questions is really around what would you feel uncomfortable to share with a friend or family, but maybe you've got the, uh, the degree of confidence to chat to your healthcare practitioner. Uh, if you've got a good relationship with a doctor or there's a, you know, a, a good interaction when you go and see the emergency practitioner, we generally find that patients are, 
are thankfully quite comfortable to disclose just about anything. The, do- the doctor is very often the sort of safe haven of uh, let me describe something that uh, I can't really tell anyone else. And then, you know, you're protected by the doctor-patient confidentiality. So I think people often are quite safe. It's a safe space for them to describe a, a, an unusual problem and then hopefully get some help. All of my friends who have given birth say that once you have given birth, all embarrassment goes out the window. There's nothing, nothing would faze you, um, which I can imagine is probably true. Yeah, I think maybe you could top that by um, having kids and, uh, and having children as they get progressively older. They can usually startle you with uh, quite embarrassing questions. So it's probably <laughs> it's probably a, a tough debate between the, the childhood experience, the ladies or, uh, or children growing up and going through puberty and tough situations at school that can probably also generate. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, Anonymous says that I've got a fungal big toe on the right foot and a piece of the nail has come off. What should I do? Definitely see your healthcare practitioner. So fungal infections, uh, which are common, by the way, it's not necessarily uh, hygiene related. You can pick them up in the community. It can be a a bathroom related thing, gymnasium, you know, toilet floors, pool floors, anything where you've got lots of people uh, that are potentially, you know, uh, exposing and, and some sharing things in common water or damp surfaces. Funguses grow and live in, in the community quite easily. Um, if the fungus has taken root in a nail bed or in uh, the nail, as this person is describing, they can sometimes be quite resistant, quite difficult to treat, and we have to treat them for an extended period of time. So certainly they can be treated, step one. Uh, they'll need persistent therapy, so it's not something we can do uh, overnight or in a couple of days. Very often, antifungal therapy, which is usually local, maybe a cream that would be applied for quite a few weeks to get that infection under control. And if it's significant, we might actually need to take some oral medication, but uh, it, it will... Uh, uh, you know, interfere with the, the nail itself and the, that fungal infection can sort of take root and, and be quite deep-seated. So certainly get a, a, a healthcare practitioner to have a look for you um, and then you can get some relief. Yeah, oh, that sounds painful. Sorry about that, Anonymous. Hope you're feeling better soon. Um, if you are just joining us, it's 26 minutes past 11. This is Late Nights with me, Sarah Jane King, uh, and we are currently doing our, uh, mo- our, our monthly uh, Monday night surgery with uh, Dr. Charlene. It's a Q&A, very general anything that you'd like to know if you'd like a little bit of advice regarding any health related issue then do give us a call please on 021-446-0567 you can put your question to the doctor uh, 0725671567 is the whatsapp line uh, that's uh, 0725671567 or of course you can send us an sms uh, to 31567 uh, another question in a friend of mine has been diagnosed with stage 3 lymphoma what does that mean Mm, so in, in very basic terms, lymphoma is a cancer. Uh, it's a cancer of the lymphatic system. So essentially the, the system that uh, is, is part of our immune system uh, involving the lymph nodes, the lymphatics. And if one gets a cancer in the lymph system, it, it, uh, it can be a number of types. Uh, listeners may have heard of something called Hodgkin's lymphoma mm. or uh, alternatively um, unimaginatively non-Hodgkin's non, yes. lymphoma. So those, you know, medicine's quite good at giving sort of fairly arbitrary titles to certain disease groups, but those those lymphomas are, are certainly very real cancers, and they do need specific uh, um, chemotherapeutic management. Um, and the direct answer 
stages of cancer typically describe how the cancer has spread. So when we talk about a stage 3 lymphoma, we're talking about a cancer that is on both sides of the diaphragm. We often use the diaphragm almost as a, as a body separator, if you like, anatomically, just to get an idea of where it is in the body. So it's no longer just a particular gland or a particular lymph node. It's spread across um, various parts of the body. So stage 3 would be one of the more advanced stages. Uh, certainly that's not a diagnosis that you're going to be you know, making at home or you know, with Dr. Google. That is a, a medical diagnosis that your physician or, or oncologist has, uh, has been part of making that diagnosis and there will be a very specific treatment strategy. So maybe in this case the question was driven by they themselves got the diagnosis or a friend and they just wanted to understand how serious it is. Um, and uh, you know, without knowing the patient, that, that is a serious diagnosis, but uh, patients can certainly get uh, a number of disease-free years of, of survival out of uh, correctly managing uh, lymphoma. So it's not a, a death sentence per se. Mm. It's, a, it's a condition that's just going to have to be managed um, extensively for a period of time. Okay, great stuff. Thanks for that. Uh, Natalie is asking, Doc, please explain what those two blood pressure numbers mean. I've always wondered, but have been too embarrassed to ask. I also want to know. I want to know that too. (laughs) That's actually a great question. Isn't that a great question? Listeners may have heard of, uh, so you go to the doc or your healthcare provider and they measure your blood pressure and they'll say it's 120 over 80, Mm. for example. So the, the 120 over 80, it's, it's a particular unit of measure. So we, we measure the blood pressure not in kilograms or centimeters. It's measured in a funny thing called millimeters of mercury, which is just the, the device that we use to measure it. And what we're really measuring is the pressure at different phases of the heartbeat, if you like. So as the cardiac, the heart system is pumping blood through the body, uh, we get a pressure that's related to when blood is being pushed out of the heart and circulating around the body, and then we get a different reading, which is essentially the, the residual or baseline pressure in the system before the next heartbeat. So it's a, it's a very cyclical thing, and when we measure blood pressure, when we have a listen and uh, the docs put the cuff around your arm, for example, we can uh, have a listen with our stethoscope and we can get a, a sense from the change in the noise that we can hear of those two levels of blood pressure. So the two numbers go very um, clearly together and between the two of them we can get a good idea of, of what's going on in your in your cardiovascular system um, hypertension for example is the disease of high blood pressure and we very often look at that bottom number as an indicator of how low the blood pressure is, is going and uh, it is also age related as one gets older one's blood pressure does tend to drift up naturally a little bit a little bit a little bit over the years um, but at a certain point we might need to treat it medically because this sustained high blood pressure is, is not healthy for many many organ systems okay i've always wanted to know what those two numbers meant and now i do <laughs> good stuff uh, thanks ever so much for that natalie good you've you've asked a question that i think many of us want to know uh marley in flederhook says that several of my seven-year-old's classmates have got chicken pox oh dear uh, my daughter hasn't had it but i read somewhere it's better for them to have it when they're younger someone suggested i take her for a play date with one of her infected friends is that a good idea Mm. Eek. No, no. Well, it, it's, it's a little bit old-fashioned. So, again, short, you know, the doctor loves short answers. Short answer, no. Why? Because there's a great vaccine available today, which is a much safer way of managing um, not getting chickenpox. So chickenpox is a virus. It's caused by varicella. 
we can very effectively vaccinate against it. Uh, back in Nam or back in the old days, whenever that was, before the vaccine was widely available, um, because of the very contagious nature of the virus, it was often recommended that rather get the virus as a child because kids tend to suffer the complications and serious effects of chickenpox much less than adults do. So there was this sort of uh, granny sort of strategy was uh, attend a pox party, I think they were called. And Absolutely. Yep, that's exactly what happened like when I was that. younger. Yeah. Yep. Share, share the virus so that you get the infection when you're a kid. Exactly. Because, um, the, the chickenpox virus is quite a simple virus. It doesn't uh, mutate or change its form every season like, for example, flu does. So once you've had chickenpox, generally speaking, your immune system builds up protective antibodies to it and you're not likely to get it again ever. So you do tend to get a lifelong protection from that, uh, from that infection. So that was the logic behind sharing the virus as kids. But as I say, today we've moved into the realm where uh, a vaccine is a far safer strategy then you don't have to have the disease at all. There we go. I, I always remember that when I was younger, was that one of us would get it, a couple of us would get it, and before you knew it, we were suddenly all round at each other's houses being told to run, <laughs> sort of lick, lick your friend, SJ, lick your friend, yeah, or rub, rub yourself cool. up, against an, uh, up against your friend, and we would all have it, and then we would all be off school at the same time, and then that would be that, and, you know... And that was that. And, and that was yeah, that. And, and a very, very contagious virus, as I said. So the, the fluid that's in those little blisters um, is, uh, is got an extremely high viral load. So it does spread Oof. very effectively. Um, and, and it is easily shared in a, in a closed community where someone does have the infection. Um, but even, even though it is what we would call a mild self-limiting childhood virus in general, there are still complications that are unnecessary if you can avoid getting it. So, you know, even from something as simple as skin scarring from a, from a bad skin infection of, uh, of varicella or some of the other organ complications, or even uh, you know persistent infections into adulthood. Um, we think of the adult version, which would be uh, kind of zoster. Uh, one can get uh, persistent, painful skin rashes as a result of the virus infecting nerves. So, in the in the greater scheme of things, if we can avoid uh, suffering the disease at all, that's a, that's a, that's first prize. I wanted to ask: Is there anyone who should definitely avoid uh, kids who've got chickenpox? Yeah, the. We would generally teach uh, kind of pregnant moms. That's always a good idea. Pregnant moms, uh, it's not a great idea to be exposed to any kind of infective viruses. And those that are immunocompromised, so, you know, someone that's, uh, for example, an HIV sufferer or any other uh, viral disease that people might be carrying at the time, also bacteria, we think of tuberculosis, anyone where your immune system is already taking a pounding from another disease, uh, a simple viral infection carries a much greater risk of, of more serious complications so those would be the, the, the sort of broad patient categories that we should uh, avoid getting chickenpox if at all possible uh, we're sticking with spots and we're going to jan uh, who says uh, can one get chickenpox twice in one's life you know i'm i'm going to go on a limb here and say yes in theory just as a function maybe of how significant the infection was first time around so it is possible to get a second, possibly milder infection later on, but it's an unusual circumstance. Traditionally speaking, we teach that if one has had an adequate exposure and you've had effectively what you know, a proper infection or a proper dose of varicella, then you should retain lifelong protection to it, so you shouldn't get another bout.
Okay, good stuff. Is some and here's a question from me: Is shingles related to chickenpox, or is shingles related to measles, or neither? Your first one was spot on. Ah. So shingles or, or zoster, as I mentioned, um, it, it's caused exactly by the same virus, uh, typically one of those adult complications, and that's where we've had the situation of the virus uh, infecting a nerve. Yes, a nerve oh, group. So terrible. It's distributed across a particular sensory nerve, so that's why it would tend to recur in the same area over and over again. Mm. Um, very uncomfortable, quite painful. Very. Uh, a significant uh, zoster infection can actually be quite debilitating and uh, and cause significant discomfort to the patient. We might actually have to use antiviral medications to bring it under control. So, yeah, that would be one of the adult complications. I've had shingles three times in my life and it always occurs at the same point, which is on sort of on my on my belt line um, as a sort of line of, of very strange looking sort of spot dot things and really bloody painful, have to say. Yeah. Spot on, and uh, no pun intended, and that's uh, you know, and that's exactly the, the scenario. So that little virus, which is quite uh, quite a stubborn little bugger, if it gets into mm. the, the sensory nerve systems, is, is kind of there for good, and it stays yeah. latent for long periods of time, and then there will be. Uh, typically a, a, a trigger that exposes it again. So in the same way as other viruses that lurk in nerves, we think of the, the herpes virus as a, good, as a good example. So one of the herpes viruses can cause cold sores. Um, so those blister-like lesions that people often get around the mouth or in the facial area, uh, that's the same example, different virus. Um, and that virus can sort of reactivate itself with a trigger. A common trigger might be a fever. Uh, so high temperature. Some people even get it just with exposure to sun, for example. Sometimes uh, hormone cycles. So some people might notice an outbreak, uh, you know, relating maybe to a period, for example. There are a number of those sorts of triggers that can unfortunately cause a, a flare-up of the viral infection. Okay, there we go. Thanks ever so much for that uh, for that question, uh, Marley. All right. Um, how can one avoid getting conjunctivitis? Uh, conjunctivitis uh, once one family. Me- oh, hold on. Once once one member in a large family gets it, does the disease float in the air, says Anonymous? <laughs> does it float in the air? So it partly does float in the air in the sense that many viral infections are spread in close contact via small respiratory droplets or often just by touching. Um, typically, conjunctivitis is caused by a virus. So it's one of the many other viruses. Adenovirus is a common example. And it it causes that inflammatory reaction in the tiny little blood vessels on the surface of the eye, on the conjunctiva, which is the invisible film that we can't see on top of the eye if you look carefully. Um, But it contains these tiny, tiny blood vessels. And if they become inflamed, then they they become visible. So the blood in those vessels is then noticeable, which is why you see the eye uh, turning red or pink. So hence, pink eye is the, is the sort of common description. It's really just enlarged vessels in the conjunctiva. They're there all the time. You just can't see them in, in, uh, in your eye. How do you avoid it? Well, it's a, it's a close contact thing. So typically we advise very stringent hand washing and not touching the itchy eyes or rubbing them. You can transfer it, for example, in yourself to the other eye. That's quite common. Um, or hand touching, you know, shaking hand, touching someone else. They can then spread it quite easily. So, again, quite uh, self-limiting, not usually associated with complications. It's rather just, it's more annoying than, uh, than uh, debilitating. Um, 
and if it's an anti if it's a virus then it's going to settle down by itself over some time we can give some symptomatic relief with uh, some drops in the eye to just help uh, uh, reduce the severity of the of the infection mm, mm. Um, but generally speaking uh, it's one of the reasons why you know kids with pink eye for example are advised to stay at home they're quarantined briefly away from school because it is very contagious and spreadable for want of a better word so pink eye conjunctivitis same thing same thing indeed did not know that all right there's still about five minutes left if you'd like to put your question to dr shark you can give us a call on 021 446 0567 drop us an sms or uh, send us a whatsapp on 072 567 1567 as this person has done uh, and says that i'm always worried that when myself and my partner decide we're ready for a family that i will be shooting blanks so my question is is there a way to check besides having a healthy diet whether your semen is healthy healthy is there yeah, a way it's, uh, i think that's a perfectly good description and a great question no problem at all but you're going to have to take a visit to your healthcare practitioner we can do a sperm count so it involves taking a sample sending it to the lab and it's basically a, a microscopic evaluation of the health of the semen to see whether that individual has got a normal sperm count um, and if yes then that you know reduces one of the uh, factors that could contribute to a, a infertility between the couple um, and uh, then we can kind of work through the different possible causes it's really around identifying whether it's uh, one partner or the other that uh, is the, the source of the problem if you like if they're struggling to have a child um, but yeah the, so the short answer is yes it's certainly possible to test um, but it will involve a, a lab test directed by your doctor. Okay, fantastic. Uh, all right, uh, I have, not I have, uh, I have what I think is a rash on my chin. Uh, it's red, raised and bumpy, although not itchy. Uh, someone at work suggested it could be ringworm. Uh, are they right? And if so, uh, how would I have caught it? Mm, there are lots of ifs and maybes and hard bizarres in that question. So, <laughs> you know, raised little lumpy, non, not so itchy rashes, very difficult to diagnose without a picture or properly having a look. Mm. But uh, ringworm per se, one can get anywhere on the body. It's, it's a skin fungus, so it's got nothing to do with worms at all. Ah, it's a fungal okay. infection fungal infection on the skin and part of the terminology comes from the shape of the lesion on the skin so one gets a, a sort of a circular almost target like looking lesion where the, the center of the lesion is actually healed and looks quite normal and then you get a, a sort of a ring of raised red uh, uh, area to the rash and that can be maybe why this particular caller or listener has is, is, is been told about ringworm mm. um, uh, the, the short answer is get a healthcare practitioner to have a look at it we can normally diagnose a fungal infection sort of from an eyeball diagnosis. We might have to do a microscopic evaluation, but it's, it's not usually necessary. And, uh, and then we can treat it with topical remedies. So we can use an antifungal uh, cream or ointment uh, on the area. Again, you know, using the, the fingernail-toe example from earlier, it's something where the therapy has to be used for a good couple of weeks to eradicate the infection. They're, they're both slow-growing and slow-dying fungal infections, so we have to kind of bash it on the head for quite a while before we get uh, we get on top of it if somebody has something like athlete's foot which is also i believe a fungal infection um can they just and then they get something that is also a fungal infection elsewhere can you just whack the same cream on that as you would for your your athlete's foot they often do respond to the same so i'm not usually one to say do some experimental home <laughs> pharmacology but the, the typical um 
sort of first-line prescription antifungals are quite effective and quite broad spectrum. So they're very often the same ointment or same cream that we're using to treat uh, a, a mild athlete's foot, for example, or a skin fungal infection elsewhere on the body. They're, they're in principle the same thing. The, the athlete's foot or the, the various other itches are, are often just described in terms of the body area that's been affected, but uh, they're all they all boil down to basically a fungal skin infection. Okay. Uh, we've got a couple more questions that, that we're going to have time for. What are the symptoms of an ulcer, uh, says Lexi in Johannesburg, and is it true that they're caused by stress? Mm. So two, two parts to that. So ulcers, well, an ulcer generally is a, a medical term that, that describes an erosion in a skin layer or an epithelial layer or a mucosal layer. So something is eroded through a normal protective barrier. And you've got protective barriers on the outside, your skin, and you've got protective barriers on the inside. The mucosal lining of your gut, for example, can be affected by ulcers. So something is causing an erosion in that protective lining. Uh, Normally when people talk about ulcers, they're not talking about the little aphthous ulcers in your mouth, the little gum ulcers, which are typically related to uh, pH changes in saliva, um, and those are quite easily managed. We're normally talking about peptic ulcers or ulcers that are in the, the, the tummy and the upper part of the duodenum, and they're uh, an erosion that can be caused largely by two things. There's actually a, a bacteria, Helicobacter is his name, and, and, and it's thought that the association of this bacteria in your gut promotes the breakdown of that protective lining of the mucosa, which then causes a very painful lesion, um, which needs to then be treated. We treat it with anti-ulcer drugs, which reduce the acid content in the gut, and we also treat it with an antibiotic. Uh, we do it at the same time, um, and we want to treat ulcers because they they can cause persistent, uncomfortable symptoms. People present with, you know, uh, gastric discomfort, uh, general tummy pain. Uh, they get indigestion. They, they battle with a whole lot of different foodstuffs. Uh, it starts impacting on sleep and general activity levels. Um, so we like to make the diagnosis. The, the diagnosis of an ulcer might actually require a scope, meaning we actually have to have a look to see if there's an ulcer causing the symptoms. So we might need to see your surgeon or your gastroenterologist who will put a scope down uh, down your esophagus, down your throat, into your tummy and have a look, and then we can really confirm the diagnosis. Are they related to stress? Mm, not really, hey? It's a... Uh, so it sounds like a good idea that if you're super stressed, you're going to, oh, I'm stressed so much, I've got an ulcer in my tummy, but uh, the, the data doesn't really seem to connect those two. So, you know, stressful lifestyles and uh, stomach or peptic ulcer formation are not really connected. Uh, ulcers are more connected to, uh, as I say, to the bacterial levels, um, food, food uh, uh, consumption, so particularly spicy foods. Uh, maybe we also think of anti-inflammatories. So people that are taking lots of anti-inflammatories, painkillers, aspirin-related, uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, those are a common cause of tummy ulcers, more so than stress. Oh, okay. All right. Now, we've had a message in, um, again, from somebody who hasn't given their name, but that's okay. Now, I'm, I, hope I'm not, I hope I'm going to pronounce this correctly. What is a rhizotomy or rhizotomy? My daughter has severe pain in her hips. A rhizotomy was advised. Are there any risks to this? Now, let's have a think about that. Rhizotomy, as far as I remember, is a a surgical procedure which is... It it involves uh, um, sort of destroying, well, not destroying, but uh, severing certain nerve supply into a particular part of the joint. So 
uh, it's going to be something that's under the advice of uh, a neurosurgeon for starters. So it's not uh, uh, general practice or emergency medicine. And the procedure is really around pain relief for particular uh, chronic joint pain that's as a function of uh, a nerve disturbance to that area. So the rhizotomy is really cutting off the nerve supply to that area. It's not treating the the disease in that part, if it's an arthritis or some other condition, it's uh, it's really cutting through the sensory nerves so that one's no longer feeling the pain. Um, I think it's the short answer, not being my field of expertise, is that it's going to be guided by uh, a surgeon, um, and it would be one of the treatment options offered for that particular condition. Okay, there we go. Uh, thanks so much for that. But uh, yeah, obviously. Uh, what did you say, neuro? neuro did you say neurosurgeon? Yeah, yeah you did. Yeah, okay, um, we've got a couple more. I must go to these. Um, Patricia Fish has messaged in and says, "Hi, SJ. Please ask the doctor to give a remedy for restless legs. I can't sleep at night. Please help. Thank you." Oh, now if I knew that, I could probably retire. <laughs> um, you know, it's a sort of uh, this this, uh, this is describing this sort of almost irresistible urge to move their legs uh, related to the evening. Um, and is there a particular remedy? All sorts of treatments have been tried from, you know, nerve treatments um, to medications that affect neurotransmitters in the brain. Um, sort of psychiatric medications have been used. They've even used medicines that are often used in epilepsy to get a side effect treatment. Uh, sometimes it's, uh, they try and tackle local causes. You know, people try and look at uh, almost like a vitamin supplement strategy or a uh, certain electrolytes, people try and, uh, you know, they target things like zinc and magnesium. We think of, of cramp methodology more than uh, restless legs. It is a, certainly a recognized phenomenon. Let's start there. So the person is not, you know, they're not faking it. It does exist, and, and many patients describe a, a significant discomfort, but there isn't one particular easy remedy. So it's probably about uh, a good relationship with your general practitioner, and work through a series of remedies to see if one can you know, possibly identify other things that are affecting the person's sleep hygiene that might then you know, make them more aware of the phenomenon uh, and see if they can bring it under control. Sometimes it's an activity-related thing. Uh, sometimes it's, a, it's an underlying disease which just hasn't been diagnosed and, uh, and maybe the practitioner can find that. But uh, certainly a tough phenomenon to deal with. Okay, there we go. Restless legs. That sounds horrendous. Um, we've got a question about kidney stones, but first let's take a listen to this voice note. Hi, Sarah Jane and Doctor. Thank you for a most informative program. Please can you tell me what a yeast infection is in the bowel? I've heard of it in other places, but I didn't know it could get in a bowel. What causes it? Can it be stress-related, and how do we solve this problem? I would really appreciate some guidance. Thank you so much. Daphne from Plumstead. Okay, so yeast infections, well, it's uh, the fungal infections commonly caused by uh, a little creature called candida. Um, and, you know, we can get overgrowth yeast infections in various parts of the body. It is possible to disturb the normal um, um, bacterial and 
uh, sort of microbiomes that exist in our gut, typically diet-related, uh, very often associated with uh, sugar disturbances, so people that have a, a, an abnormal carbohydrate mix in their diet that can sometimes contribute to it. Um, the, the long and the short is, is to be properly examined by your doctor and make sure that uh, there are no other acute disease processes going on. Is there a particular area that is, uh, that is triggering this overgrowth of this, these bacterial, these sort of intestinal flora, let's call them that, and then certainly they can be treated. So one can take a, a course of medication that can reduce it and uh, that will afford a very good relief from the symptoms. Okay, great stuff. Uh, do children still get hair lice uh, like during the war? And uh, is it expensive or easy to get rid of? Well, I can answer that question. Uh, yes, they do. <laughs> yes, they do. Uh, yes, they do. Um, oh, my crafty, goodness. crafty little guys, isn't it? So hair lice is a recurring problem, particularly in, in you know, schools, and for example, wherever you've got a concentration of kids in one place. Um, they are little creatures, little parasitic creatures that live on, uh, on the hair. And uh, they're different types of creatures depending on which types of hair. So, for example, we get pubic lice and we get general head lice. They're different. They're different creatures altogether. The one doesn't uh, travel to the other part of the body, thankfully. Um, and uh, uh, do we still see it in 2019? We absolutely do. And it doesn't matter which end of the socioeconomic spectrum you're on. So it occurs, uh, you know, right throughout society. Um, are they easy to treat? Yes, thankfully, they still are. So we can get a number of uh, shampoo or local uh, topical preparations that uh, can kill the creature and uh, we might just have to do a bit of mechanical clearance as well which is a, a sort of a rather laborious combing process to get rid of the little nits or the, the residual eggs if you like that uh, would uh, prompt a, a regrowth of the infection so we would nuke it with the shampoo and then uh, comb uh, repeatedly comb them out and once we've got clearance then the infection is, is done and dusted I once heard and I know there are probably a million and one sort of remedies and, and old wives tales and things when it comes to nits but I once heard that covering hair in conditioner uh, makes it easier for the nits or their eggs I'm not quite sure to slide out have you heard of that one is there any truth in that at all yeah, I heard about it. Not sure there's any truth in it. No. Because, um, you know, the uh, typical commercial hair conditioners are really just moisturizing agents that are, uh, you know, going on the outside of the hair follicle and the keratin to just making the hair um, generally a little bit easier to manage. I think being someone with extremely short, essentially no hair, I'm not a conditioner expert by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> um, but this is what I'm told people use conditioner for. Um, and no, it unfortunately medically doesn't make any difference to managing a last infection. Oh, uh, we need to use one of the medicated shampoos because you actually do need to kill the nits for starters. Uh, and then they, they really have got a tight grip. They're designed to grip a particular diameter of hair. So once they're, once they're there, they, they really are, are, are quite uh, nasty to get rid of. And it needs to be a mechanical uh, removal with a very fine tooth comb. It's so, I must just tell what I think is an amusing anecdote. When, when my brother and I were young and nits first uh, made its way into our school, we were, we, I, I don't know, probably four and six or four and seven. And my grandmother, who I often describe as being very much like Queen Elizabeth II, was absolutely horrified that we'd caught nits. She, she was convinced that it was something that only, you know, dirty, nasty, awful people get. Um, and, uh, and I remember that we uh, were told in no uncertain terms not to tell anyone, don't tell the neighbours that the children have got nits. So we promptly, of course, went round and gave her nits instead. Uh, so she was delighted by that, I can honestly say. Sure yeah, thrilled. Absolutely thrilled. Uh, what are the symptoms of kidney stones? That's our last question for Dr. Charles tonight. 
uh, pain for starters. So um, a, a renal stone, they, they occur in different parts of the, of the urinary tract. So we, we're thinking typically of a, of a calcium uh, or the other, the other um, chemicals that actually form. So it forms maybe at, uh, in the base of the kidney. And that particular stone, which is now a, a concentrate of solid material, so it's no longer liquid urine in the urinary tract. You now have a solid structure that's in that uh, particular part of the anatomy. And that stone, uh, the reason it causes discomfort is typically when it moves down the urinary tract through one of the very narrow structures that's not designed to have anything in it except fluid. Um, <clears throat> typically it's moving down a structure called the ureter, which is the thin tube that links the kidney to the bladder. So you've got normally two kidneys, one on either side, and they each one are linked by a ureter going centrally towards your one bladder. And if that stone is moving down the ureter, the ureter is a structure that uh, can generate significant symptomatology. So the spasm that occurs in that ureter is extremely painful. I've seen you know, the, the expression of, of grown men crying kind of thing, although I, I can hear all the ladies saying, well, typical, the grown men would be doing the crying, the ladies <laughs> would be fine. Um, but honestly, any patient uh, who is experiencing the passage of a renal stone or a kidney stone will experience significant discomfort. Um, and the treatment is, is usually symptomatic. So we're going to treat them with significant painkillers and medicines to reduce the spasm in the ureter. And uh, then they'll typically pass uh, without any further ado. And a stone can be quite tiny. Hey? A little fragment like the size of a rice grain can cause pain that's sort of childbirth equivalent. So it's, it's a big deal if someone's actually experiencing uh, uh, renal colic is, is the, the, what we describe the pain as. Um, and then we might have to go into understanding what the source of the stone is. So, you know, has the person got a chemical disturbance? Maybe we need to treat them medically to reduce the risk of the stones. And ultimately, there might need to be a, a, a sonar or ultrasound type treatment or even a surgical removal of stones if, uh, if we're not winning with, uh, with medical therapy. Ouch, that doesn't sound terribly pleasant or pain-free. No, indeed. And uh, it's, it's one of those conditions where one has quite significant respect for the person's pain threshold, and we do take them quite seriously. So it's sort of first stop pain control in the emergency department, second stop conversation about how it might have occurred. Right. Listen, we're going to have to leave it there, Dr. Shah, but thanks so much. It's been a great discussion and uh, many, many questions answered, and we will chat again to you soon. Such a pleasure to chat to you.